I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything, yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's, it's so real to this day. I, I I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? (laughs) We did it guys. One that came out of nowhere. It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. This episode of Spaces Podcast is supported by Twin Motion, the simple real-time rendering solution to create high-quality imagery, client presentations, and interactive experiences that help communicate your design ideas fast. Hello, my name is Demetrius. Jason is out, but you are listening to Spaces Podcast Express. Thank you for coming back, everybody. Today we have a guest. I'm super excited about this episode. We've had a mechanical designer on before, but now we have somebody on the commercial HVAC installation side who's going to give their perspective and insight. And I'm particularly excited because I went through a few commercial projects recently that had HVAC equipment installed. So today our guest is a startup specialist and instructor at MCOR Mesa Energy Services. Please help me welcome Tony Barbano. Tony, thank you for joining me. Of course. To start off, can you... Give me a super simplified explanation of what a HVAC, commercial HVAC installer does. Probably the simplest thing is we get the, uh, the prints from the mechanical engineer for the job. We look at the prints and we order the equipment and we install the equipment and turn it on and calibrate it and make sure that it is running per design. It could be a, a chiller right, which is a large device that cools water instead of air, and then the water is pumped through the building, and then they use the water as the source of heat transfer. It could be a large air handler. It could be an exhaust fan. It could be a boiler. 
Uh, all these things are things that we work on. So we are the ones actually implementing the plan that's on the prints for a specific space in a, in a building. What is your, your role at MCOR? I know you, you're an instructor as part of your job, but, but what's your official title and, uh, and your role? My official title is uh, I'm a United Association Local 250 foreman. So uh, United Association is the union for pipe fitters, sprinkler fitters, plumbers, HVAC service technicians, and um, welders. So they're uh, the biggest, largest uh, union across the world for that. And for example, any pipeline work, that's United Association, that's what they do. So I'm a union foreman that MCOR is the company in which I work for uh, underneath the union, right? Got it. So at MCOR, I am a uh, startup service technician as well as a Title 24 uh, startup technician. So then I'll explain a little bit what that is later. But then on top of that, uh, every just like any other trades union, there's an apprenticeship program under the union, and I'm an instructor for the apprenticeship program. I teach third-year apprentices uh, two nights a week. Okay. So you're on the HVAC, uh, with MCOR, you're on the HVAC, yeah. commercial HVAC install and maintenance. One, what would you say the difference is between uh, HVAC uh, for residential and then for commercial? Oh, wow. Um, okay. So, uh, yeah, HVAC for residential typically deals with uh, smaller size equipment uh, than what I'll deal with, right? And also with residential, you're typically dealing with very a, a minimalist type design because they're trying to keep the cost low, right? Mm -hmm. So when you're talking about commercial, especially what we do, we do a lot of work for hospitals. We do a lot of work for uh, pharmaceutical labs. We do a lot of work for uh, schools and government buildings. So things like indoor air quality are important, especially in the past year and a half. You know, I've, I've made more money in the past year than I've ever made for that. <laughs> yeah. uh, the other thing too is things like air exchanges in a room. So making sure that a room is, has enough air movement, different scenarios for uh, air pressurization, positive pressure rooms, negative pressure rooms to make sure uh, whatever is in the room stays in the room or whatever is outside the room doesn't come in the room. Yeah. We deal with all of those things that are not necessarily dealt with in, in a residential uh, scenario. It's a lot more complicated one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so most commercial jobs will have a mechanical engineer design those unit because of that complexity. What's sort of that relationship with you guys in the field and working with a mechanical engineer who has designed something for you? That's a great question. Uh, what we are taught in the apprenticeship program, we're taught a lot of the same math and formulas that only regard to what we do, right? So mm -hmm. a mechanical engineer learns a more of a broad education when it comes to uh, mechanical engineering, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's there's no definitely no doubt that there is more uh, learned with a mechanical engineer than we have. We learn the same things they do, but specifically this much of it to yeah. deal with, you know, what we're what we're dealing with. So you're just yeah. a very small, narrow. <laughs> <amount. laughs> yeah, my bad. Yeah. yeah. So that's important to know because, and for us to know because the engineer is given a lot of faith. Let's say, mm. um, and they should. So when they design a job that says, okay, you put this equipment in and you install it in this way, it will do what we want it to do, right? Mm -hmm. And they put it on on a, on a set of prints and they give it to us. And so it's our job to do exactly as he is told or as we're told and as he designed. And so we do that. Now, my job as a startup technician 
is to come in and make sure that after turning the equipment on and calibrating the equipment, now where it comes in with our education in the apprenticeship program is what if, and you know, nobody's perfect, right? I'm not perfect, no engineer is perfect. So what if they're designed, even though we did exactly how they designed it, what if it's not working right? Then I have to go in and I have to use the same formulas and math that he used to define if it is designed wrong, how? Hmm. And that way I can write it down in a language that he understands and give it back to him and say, this is where we went wrong. We need to make some changes now. The, the thing that sucks about that for everybody involved is, as you know, the engineer is responsible for any mistakes that he makes yeah. monetarily, right? So he's going to push back, right? And and that's uh, that's totally understandable. So I have to make sure that my findings are in his language and his formulas. So that way there is no doubt that, okay, let's work together on this to get a solution because this is not it, you know? Yeah. And that's probably the biggest thing because there we as a union uh, HVAC startup technician, we are the last double check. Nobody else can double check it, right? Yeah. So we're the last ones. Uh, and, and like I said, 99% of the time, it's never an issue. But that 1%, it's a, fa- it's a hard fight. You yeah. know? So we got to make sure we know what we're talking about. Yeah. I just recently went through a project where um, the installer of the HVAC equipment commercial job saw the plans and was like, just from their experience, they're like, this is not going to work. Or have you thought about this? Or, Mm -hmm. you know, pointed out all these things. But uh, just that that experience of, you know, installing for this person was 20 years uh, to throw all these things out just to think about was super helpful and uh, confident inducing when yeah. you have somebody like that installing. Have you had that experience or is that pretty common where you come across drawings and just your field experience and knowledge, you, you quickly can understand, you know, this is not going to work or you may want to think about certain things? So if I know the environment, then yes. So if I if I've only seen the prints, probably not. But if I know the building and I know the the, the area, and then I see the prints, then yeah, um, I can definitely offer some stuff. But I have worked with some project managers who are very much like that. And <laughs> the for example, we were doing the job. The company I was working at, we were doing a job for a Kaiser uh, Medical Office building in in Long Beach. Mm-hmm. And he looked at the, uh, now this is building automation, right? My last company, I was doing uh, energy management systems, right? Mm -hmm. And my project manager took the prints and based off the prints, he sent in, before we even showed up on the job, I think it was like 20 RFIs, which, Mm. you know, requests for information to the engineer, 20 of them. Oh my God. And yeah, and and he, let's just say he, his name was John. And let's just say John was known (laughs) <laughs> very fast within the engineering firm and the general contractor because he had the foreknowledge and the foresight like oh if we don't have this laid out or in in writing this is going to be a problem if yeah. this is then this is going to be a problem yeah. yeah that is out there with us uh, we do shock some mechanical engineers sometimes <laughs> you know like uh and oh i didn't you know and they're and they're actually a lot of times they're very uh grateful because you're like no i didn't think of that i didn't think of this I didn't think of that. so next time they're going to think of that yeah, that's it's very helpful. So what tends to be like a couple things that you that someone on the the field side tends to run into issues or things that you kind of tend to have to point out to engineers? 
uh, like I was just saying, BMS, building management, energy management, controls, right? which is the computerization of the equipment. It's still not a very familiar part of our industry, even though it's been around for like 20 years, 15 years. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times what they'll do is they'll be very generic about, okay, the system, for example, uh, boiler needs to have backnet communication. And that's a very broad term. Like uh, this car needs to have a engine. It's like, wait a minute, you know, <laughs> what kind of engine, what size, you know, things like that. Yeah. So that's, and that's, uh, like I said, I think it's just because a lot of people aren't familiar with it. Uh, even in the apprenticeship program, we only don't, we only commit like, I think uh, one semester to it. And on top of that, it's only becoming more and more prevalent, right? The manufacturers are making products that have more controls in it the California Energy Commission is requiring more work in buildings to be controlled. For example, in our Title 24 startup certification, there's one mechanical form called the fault detection diagnostic form. Mm -hmm. And basically this means that the unit has to have some way of notifying either the building owner or the company working on the building that a unit is in fault, right? So it used to be that a unit had a fault detection system within itself and you wouldn't know if the unit was faulted until you got in front of it and took the panel off and saw the blinking light. Mm. But now they want that to be networked. So that way, if the unit goes into fault, it's not working. Somebody's getting an email. Somebody's getting some kind of flashy light on their computer screen, yeah. whatever saying, Hey, this unit's in fault. We got to do something about it. So that, that side of the industry is becoming more and more necessary and probably not a lot of people know too much about it. Mm. Are there scales to that? Are we talking like the Kaiser, like the large building or all commercial jobs, even down to the small coffee shop? Well, there, there is, you're right. There is scales to it. So for example, we do a lot of work for uh, Wells Fargo banks right now, mm-hmm. right? So the Wells Fargo bank is just interested in the unit. Uh, if the unit is uh, faulty or not, the temperature in the space and the CO2 in space. So mm-hmm. like that's, that's pretty much it. But like, yeah, Kaiser hospital, they'll have, all kinds of different levels within its own building. Yeah. So for example, Kaiser Riverside, they have a, a main hub hospital and then they have a bunch of satellite buildings all around in the same county. Mm-hmm. So the building engineer that's in the central plant of the hospital in Riverside, he will have full control and monitoring abilities of not just that hospital, but all of the medical office satellite buildings in Moreno Valley and in Indio and in Temecula everywhere around so any rn any nurse any any person that wants to change to their uh, temperature setting or they have issues or whatever will call into the central plant in riverside and they have communication for all of that yeah we we help install and monitor and maintenance all that wow yeah we're going to take a quick break to share a little bit more about our sponsors What if you could visualize your building in a couple of clicks, remove months from the design process, or create a bridge between stakeholders to solve problems before they even come up? Our friends at Twinmotion offer simple, real-time visualization for architects. Their technology lets you view and edit your scene on the go in the same pixel-perfect quality as the final rendering. Twinmotion seamlessly integrates with other tools like SketchUp and Revit transforming your BIM or CAD models into high-quality images, panoramas, VR videos, or presentations. Sound complicated? 
Well, what if I told you that Twinmotion enables anyone to present the biggest ideas in the easiest way possible, regardless of previous CG experience? To download your exclusive free trial, head to twinmotion.link spaces. That's twinmotion.link spaces. On the smaller scale side, I did want to point out one story that you you alluded to about the um, monitoring the systems of the space. Uh, there was one job where the engineer had designed to have a thermostat located just below the blower, um, <laughs> which the uh, <laughs> mechanical or the uh, installer pointed out. It's just something that you don't probably don't think about when you're sitting in front of a computer. But the installer had pointed out, you know, this thermostat is not going to read or it's not going to cool the space appropriately because it's always going to get this direct wind and not understand what the entire space is like. Yep. So we had to make that adjustment in the field. So, again, just super helpful to have that knowledge and experience. Yeah, typically you want to install your thermostat or whatever is reading your temperature as close to your return right mm, as possible yeah. where the air is being sucked back in that's your truest temperature typically where you want to put that so yeah yeah that makes sense and then i did want to to suggest as far as uh you know not and i i can't speak for whoever laid out the the drawing that you were referring to but i know from a design side we're often told to not get too specific with oh, okay. certain things because it it allows the building owner to make adjustments and the the team in the field to make adjustments as needed so sometimes that can be an annoyance uh, for okay. people in the field but um unless unless you have that agreement and discussion with the client to to be very detailed because some inspectors when they get to the field they look at the drawings and the drawings say something specific and it's not that in the field then they will you know flag it and say you got to stop and either give me something that says something different or you know it, it creates a very concrete situation that you have to execute exactly what's in the plans so there is that as far as the from the design sites being kind of vague you know that's a great point i never thought of that uh because you're right whatever's on the print that that's god's word right there like yeah. very metaphorically of course like yeah that's uh man i didn't think of that so you're actually doing us a service in a way <laughs> yeah. by keeping it vague i i like that yeah you're right because you know those inspectors they got complexes yeah they're, gonna, they're gonna some ones will come in and be like you know i hey, this is proof i was there see i marked this wrong you know <laughs> yeah uh, that's a good point. Okay, I, I like that. Yeah, and I guess as long as the designer designer is okay with a bunch of RFIs coming his way, then yeah, they were good. And the RFIs aren't on the print, so that that helps out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's always good though to have that open line of communication too. Yeah. Um, of just you know, what were you intending here? Yeah. Um, like, well, it's not necessarily our call to make, so the client has to have some input on you know, what they want to do here or how sure. much they're willing to spend. So for sure. Um, but yeah, it's, it's always, and that's why we're doing this podcast yeah. <laughs> to, to keep this open line of communication that's right. about, yeah. about the industry. Okay. So, um, so now you do, you do training. Yeah. What are one or two things that you try to teach your apprentices that are coming in? So our schooling program is a five-year program for the apprentices where they go to school two nights a week, for three hours a night. 
and they learn everything that at least we feel at the moment we they learn everything about what there is to at least see or touch or what's mostly important about what they're going to experience in the trade and to give them the foundation uh, of theory behind the things that they're going to be looking at now now the employer has them for 40 hours a week so it really is on them to make sure they're exposed and that they're fine-tuned in the field mm-hmm. hands-on because most of these guys let's be real they're not the college was not for them that's why they're in the trade so they're hands-on guys right they need to be looking at it and touching it while they're being told about it right mm-hmm. so i teach one semester and by the way because this program is uh gets grants from the state of california that we, they can we can turn this time in for units which is pretty cool so if somebody wants to get their as this time in the pressure program can contribute to that um so anyway so for one semester i teach uh third year apprentices and I teach them electronic controls, which is standalone electronic equipment for uh, HVAC systems. So this is not things that are networked. These are things where the device itself has a user interface and a, an up and down, a left, right button and a home and a menu button. You, can yeah. do everything. you don't need a computer. You can do everything from the screen of the device. So, so every week in my class, we teach a different device. And this is devices that they, they can upsell or, or basically solve issues or problems for their customers. So another device I teach is a variable frequency drive. You know, we call them VFDs. These enable a motor to operate, not just either not running or running full speed, but can uh, modulate the speed of the motor. So we can run at 50%, 75%, 80%. Because when you go break down the math, if you can get a motor to run at 80% speed and it still do the job, then it only pulls half the power compared to 100% speed. So they allow also a lot of energy savings. So those are two of our bigger weeks that we talked about. But yeah, so and the, the great thing about the apprenticeship program is the apprentices, they start off with first year pay. Okay, so I'm gonna expose a little bit, but this is all public information anyway. But a first year apprentice right now makes $20 an hour, right? Oh. Plus benefits, plus they get a company vehicle, uh, they get a pension, they're in the union. So they get all the union benefits, plus uh, a company gas car and a company truck, and then their first year, right? which means they're $20 an hour. So for one year between September to June, they go to school. And if they are still in good standing, they pay their dues, their employer is happy with them, and they're passing their classes, then they graduate to a second year apprentice. So that means that next September, now they get a bump up, then they go up to like $25 an hour. Hmm. That's second year. And then so now it's motivation, right? And you're getting incentives, right? So you, they work their way up. And right now a journeyman is just under $50 an hour. So they'll go from 20 to 50 in a matter of five years. Wow. Like I said, plus benefits and all the, by the way, the union doesn't charge the students for the schooling uh, per se. So the schooling is free. So they come out of it at $50 an hour with no student loans on top of that. The catch is, is that you're committing to work for the union for 10 years after that. Gotcha. So if you leave the union after become a journeyman with all this great training and you go work non-union HVAC, then they're going to come after you for about 30 to 40,000. And that's uh, what is basically what it costs. But if you decide to leave the HVAC industry and become a post officer postman, then they're not going to come after you. That's fine. Gotcha. But you have to work 10 years. So every year after you graduate, you get 10% knocked off of what you owe. Hmm. Right. And uh, I, so this year is my 10th year. I no longer owe. <laughs> so I can, <laughs> nice. Not to say I want to leave. I enjoy where I'm at. But yeah, 
it's a really cool program. A lot of schools, we, we try to go with the high schools. They don't really like us there because they, you know, they advocate for college, which is fine. Yeah. But word's getting around. Word's yeah. getting around right now that trades are are make, are doing just as well as anybody yeah. else. You know, you can have a, a very great living, you know, being in a trade. So uh, is that program California specific or is it some version of that exists nationally? Yeah, uh, through the whole union. So there's an apprenticeship program at every state and every local right okay. across the international area like our union is canada us britain ireland and australia so uh, everywhere there's a local there's some kind of apprenticeship program okay and then let's finish this with one last question what is one thing that someone should know in regards to to hvac something that maybe makes your job harder or easier that they should know to make the job go smoother? That's a great question. Uh, and I'll, I'll nail it right on the head for you. Title 24. I don't know if you've heard about it. Any, any MER that you know will know about it. But the California Energy Commission has developed a program called the Title 24 program. And it basically stems from the fact, I don't know how long ago, but the California made the decision that they're going to make their grid much more efficient their customers have to be much more efficient because we're not making power plants anymore. Mm-hmm. We need to conserve energy. And so they hired a, uh, a research company to come in and find out who were the biggest soakers up, if you will, of our power. And they found, of course, no big, no big surprise, HVAC in all the buildings, the large commercial buildings. So they dove a little deeper and found out that one of the biggest issues is economizers, which are, which are systems that bring in outside air, to cool the building when it's cold out instead of running the compressors with the mechanical cooling. And that's supposed to save energy. Well, they found that like 90% of the economizers either aren't working or they're not set up right. So that stemmed, okay, well, how do we make sure that the equipment installed is being installed right and calibrated right? Okay, well, that kept going from there to basically now there are about 24 different forms that basically walk step-by-step a technician through the startup and calibration process for any piece of equipment that's being installed. And these forms are now mandatory to be turned in when the job is being inspected, right? And the thing is that not just anybody can fill out a form, you have to be Title 24 certified, right? Mm -hmm. So the mechanical engineer, when they're doing, we have our own in-house engineer, he has a questionnaire he goes through online. Where's the building at? Which climate zone? What kind of equipment is it? What kind of building is it? And he answers all these questions and it spits out, okay, you need these different forms per unit. Yeah. And so that goes on the print. And then when the city inspector comes in and sees the print and sees, okay, I need these title 24 forms when I show up and fill that. Okay, no problem. So my job, I'm one of two title 24 certified guys in my company. I'll show up on the job. I'll do all the, fill out all the forms, do the step-by-step process for them. And, and put my signature on it. And then that gets turned in when the inspector shows up. Now, because it's newer, the, the California Energy Commission is uh, is just now starting to enforce this because they just got their 300 technicians that they want to be certified within the state. So now what they're doing, and they, we have, we, I was on the uh, California Energy Commission webinar, this was like maybe six months ago, that they're now going to go and do a training blitz to all of the inspectors and all the cities in the state and educate them. This is what title 24 is. This is where they're on the prints. This is what they look like. And you need to collect these. And this is important because it takes time for me to go in and fill out these forms. So my company has to put that time in the bid when they bid on a job. 
and it, and a lot of companies don't know about it, so they're not putting that time in, and so they're winning the bid, and that's unfair to us yeah. because especially what happens is the inspector doesn't know to collect that, yeah. so so they're basically getting away with it. So we've told the California Injury Commission, like, look, you we need to get the inspectors educated because if the inspector goes to the company and says, where are these forms? And they go, I, I, I. and now they got to pay for it, third party, and then they're not going to make any money in the job. And then they learn their lesson. So the next time they're going to put it in the bid. And now everybody's bidding competitively. Yeah. So that's the probably the biggest thing is Title 24. It's here. It's big. And we're everybody's mad rushing to get people certified. Last point, because any government work now, there's a bill that passed, the AB 841, right, for mm-hmm. the state. So that's a lot of funds to go into HVAC upgrades for, for schools and government buildings. Well, they put a clause in there that you can't even bid on the work unless you have a Title 24 technician. Wow. So uh, it's it's a big deal right now. It's coming, it's coming down to shoot. Wow. Thank you so much. This is extremely informative. Yeah, anytime, Demetrius. Yeah, so thanks again for joining me, Tony. Thank you to the listeners for listening, and we'll talk next week on Tuesday. Thanks. Thank you to Twin Motion for their support of this podcast episode. Don't forget to visit twinmotion.link slash spaces today and try Twin Motion for free. Thanks again for listening. Spaces is part of the Gable Media Network. You can check out similar content at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. If you enjoy our show, you can support us in three simple ways for free. You can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or on your podcast app if it allows you to. Tell a friend and follow us on social media. Thanks for spending time with us. Talk soon. Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host Patrick McLaney, FAIA former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise. From 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. 
And hold on tight for Season 2, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOPA. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm.